Well, we're continuing this morning in our series on the book of Psalms. And as we look at the whole book of Psalms, we need to know that the book of Psalms is not like a box of chocolates. We just kind of pick and choose the ones that you like the look of or that you think might you know, fit the moment that you uh, are in at this time. The whole book of Psalms is actually written for our growth. They underpin a mature life of prayer, both corporately and individually. And as we move on to Psalm 3 this week, I want to suggest that when it comes to growing our lives of prayer, the book of Psalms serves as a great set of training wheels. How do training wheels work? We know how they work, really, right? They do their best work when you're actually already moving on the bike. Uh, you, you have to pedal, and you have to steer, and you get to use the brakes. But what training wheels do is they, they help keep us balanced. They give the rider the feel of actually riding a bike, even when they're not quite up to that yet. I'm not suggesting that you know, the person with a mature uh, prayer life is ever going to discard the Psalms, you know, like a Tour de France rider would look pretty funny with their training wheels on still, right? The analogy is not that good. My point is simply this, that the Psalms show us how to pray. They get us up and moving and going, and they keep us upright. They keep us in God's way, even before we're confident in the life of prayer. The Psalms are a brilliant school of prayer. It's a little bit like the way that the Lord's Prayer works for the Christian. In the Lord's Prayer, we, we kind of learn how to pray even though we never leave that prayer behind. And so this is how the book of Psalms work in growing a mature life of prayer for us. Psalm 3, which is where we're up to this morning, they take a, it takes us straight into a very desperate situation. And in this psalm, we learn how to depend on the truth that deliverance comes from the Lord. As we pray this psalm, it serves as training wheels for us in a time of distress, grounding us in God's sufficiency. So as you turn to Psalm 3, look in your NIV Bibles and you'll see that the psalm actually begins in verse 0. Now, Marie didn't even read that out this morning because she wasn't asked to. But that little heading that you see in your Bible, it's like a superscript, that's part of the canonical text of the Bible. This isn't something that Mr. Zondervan dreamt up and kind of put in there when he was putting in the maps and the colourful pictures and the footnotes. This is received as part of of the text of the Bible, and it gives us information in in many of the Psalms about the setting, about the author, about the genre. Some Psalms actually have postscripts, which kind of give you musical notes, you know, the style of music to be played with this or how to perform this particular Psalm. And so this Psalm, Psalm 3, begins with this superscript, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. We know that no prayers happen in a vacuum, right? There's always a situation. There's always a context from which our prayers arise. And Psalm 3 comes from a particular situation in the life of King David. Uh, it doesn't matter whether David wrote this psalm actually you know, down on a piece of papyri in the cave at night as he was running away or whether he just prayed it that night 
and wrote it down later for the instruction of all of Israel. What does matter is the circumstances from which this psalm arises. This is when he fled from his son Absalom. And we know quite a lot about that situation. We read a kind of a nice overview from 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. This is from a time later in David's life. In fact, the monarchy is well established in Jerusalem from when this, where this is set. The kingdom is all in order. But David's family life is a mess. His oldest living son is Absalom, and he has raped his half-sister Tamar. For that, he was exiled, but after some time and lots of agitating, he kind of snuck his way back into Jerusalem. And when in Jerusalem, David refused even to see him, but Absalom went on a kind of a four-year public relations campaign to bring about his popularity. His plan was to succeed David as king. Looks like that's not going to happen. And so Absalom begins to build a coup. Uh, And sure enough, as the campaign grows, by chapter 15, verse 13, David hears the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. The conspiracy now has gained momentum. David realizes, wow, I've either got to stand and fight Absalom and his whole army of defectors, or I'm going to have to run for it. And he decides to flee for his life. David flees Jerusalem with his entire household very publicly, very deliberately, and full of shame. As he leaves the city, everyone can see his disgrace. He's dressed in sackcloth. He has ashes on top of his head. Everyone knows why he's going. Even his own son wants him dead. It looks like David is abandoning the throne. This is the the guy, by the way, who, who confronted Goliath with just a slingshot. And here he is, chickening out. He is running away. And by nightfall, as David's group crosses the river and they go into hiding in the wilderness, perhaps that is that night in which David prays first this prayer, which has become Psalm 3. It's a very personal psalm, isn't it, as we look at it? It's all about my this, my that, I this. It's written in the first person. This is the prayer of a man whose son is betraying him. This is the prayer of a man in great distress. It has been put now into a form for wider consumption. It's not entirely specific. It's meant for the life of Israel to be used, this prayer. It begins in David's experience, but it is written now in a way that everyone can enter into this prayer. It's like training wheels for prayer when you are in an extreme situation. So Psalm 3, it's a a cry of lament when David's doom seems to have arrived. So verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So things are pretty bad for David. They are bleak. There's that repetition. How many? How many? How many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? Many are saying, basically, David has no chance. 
That's what everybody thinks. He is doomed. Everyone is saying God will not deliver him. That word deliverance is actually the same root word for salvation. Now, particularly in the Old Testament, that word salvation doesn't usually carry the connotations that we as Christians, as New Testament readers, would bring to it. We, we think of salvation, God saves us, that means we are set free from guilt and sin before God, so that instead of going to hell, we enjoy eternal life with God. We think of salvation in those terms. But in the Old Testament, salvation, deliverance, has that sense of God rescuing a person from their earthly enemies, uh, which is why that word deliverance is more often used in the Old Testament. So in other usage, in, in God delivers Jacob and his sons from famine. Okay, So that's in Genesis. Or God delivers Israel from Egypt um, in the Exodus. God delivers, using the judges, his people from the Philistines. So that word deliver or deliverance is, is the key word. God saves in that sense. But everyone thinks David is not on the list of people that God is going to save. That's what they have all decided. And so since David is thoroughly doomed, the question arises, will God actually deliver his anointed king? We've we've read in the narrative before in 2 Samuel, King David, he's the one anointed by God. But will God actually deliver him? And by the by, as we read the entire book of Psalms, this is a key theme. The, will, will God deliver his anointed king who seems to be doomed? We see that develop as the book continues. And what we also see is that God's righteous king always only depends upon God for deliverance. doesn't try to save himself, but depends upon God to do that. So as we go further through the Psalms, we'll notice that. Well, we know David's situation. What does he do next? What does he pray next? He moves on in verses 3 and 4 to kind of take stock. Okay, what really is my situation? It's a bit like a military uh, thinker might, might move. And first of all, he considers his defences. Verse 3, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, And he answers me from his holy mountain. What's happening here is that the focus of this psalm has shifted from David and from his circumstances now to God's sufficiency. Okay, one of one of the great things about praying through the Psalms, and particularly a short psalm like this is only eight verses, is that we move forward always. We continue the prayer. And so we don't wallow in our circumstance for more than a couple of verses. This psalm says, let's shift our attention to God's presence in the midst of the very circumstances from which this prayer arises. The the same circumstance in which God's people are saying there's no chance for David, in that very situation, David remembers, God is my shield around me. David's situation is bad and it doesn't change. But God is his shield. That's the fundamental reality that's in his mind. Whatever happens, God is my defense. 
says David. There's something else that God is too. God is David's glory. That is, God is his dignity, his, his honour. David is depending upon God for his reputation. So often, I think, we, we act for the good of our own reputation, don't we? Right? we you know, for our, our reputation for success or our reputation for competency or integrity, whatever it is, we're very quick to defend our own honour, but not King David. He's done the walk of shame out of Jerusalem in full sight of, of his friends and also his enemies, I might add. The great warrior looks like a wimp. And as we read that narrative from 2 Samuel, he's got random people hurling stones and abuse and cursing him. His reputation is surely diminished. But David's only claim is that God is his glory. His reputation, his honour. In fact, as David prays, it's God's glory and God's reputation that's at stake in this prayer. Ultimately, David knows that God is the one who lifts up his head. In other words, God is the one who will elevate David's status. That's what it means to lift up the head. David's position is to be promoted. His situation is actually to be restored. So this is quite um, a powerful psalm in that David begins recognising how bad things are. He understands his utter helplessness. And he knows that nothing short of deliverance is what he needs. He needs God to act on his behalf. Despite all of the resources at his disposal, he's still got a few resources, David knows I am unable to adequately deal with this situation on my own. So he calls to mind his true position. What is my real position? I'm surrounded by God. He is my shield. And he's my glory. So when we come to pray, we should begin by understanding our true position. We need God. Whatever our situation is, we need him. We are not able to fix it ourselves. Whatever our circumstances are, our circumstances don't rule. God rules. He's the glorious one. He's the one who will lift our heads. He is closer to you than you know. He surrounds you at every point. He is protecting you. He knows your deepest need. And he hears your prayer. This is the big step forward in this psalm. Recognising not your situation, but recognising God in your situation. When you get to verse 5 in this psalm, we're at kind of the pivot point for the psalm. David is now going to act on the basis of his defence, on the basis of all that he knows is true about God. So verse 5 and 6, David writes, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I'll not fear, though, tens of thousands assail me on every side. This is the pivot in the psalm, right? Although David is under pressure to defend his, his supporters, his family, his, his, even his own life, he sleeps. David lies down in sleep. You know what the prerequisite for good sleep is, don't you? The prerequisite for sleep is not tiredness. 
The prerequisite for sleep is peace. Knowing that his defence comes from God, David has peace. Now I try to imagine that night, that first night sleeping in the wilderness. And we know that there's three militia groups who are with David. I imagine the commanders sort of saying, where is David? We need to know what our plan is for tomorrow. We need to get ready. Um, there's got to be more action. Hustle, hustle. Can you, that would be happening surely that night in camp. What about anxious family members? What about the supporters? David, what's he doing? He's praying. And he entrusts himself to God. Who knew what could happen while he was sleeping? Do you notice when he wakes up the next morning, verse 6, his circumstances haven't changed. There are still tens of thousands drawn up around him on every side, but he has peace because he realises the trustworthiness of God. Depending on God, which is what verses 5 and 6 about, that's the forerunner of verses 7 and 8, which is deliverance. Okay? We know that's the theme of this psalm. As we work through the psalm this morning, this has great power to change us right at this moment. This could actually significantly grow your prayer life right now if you let it. You kind of got a choice. You could say, wow, that was a great psalm this morning. David was in a tough spot. Very impressive the way he got out of that. And we could walk away. If we do that, we've missed out on what God has for us in this psalm. You see, this psalm, and in fact every psalm, is intended to be prayed and prayed regularly. It's meant to change us as we pray, as well as call out to God who will change whatever he chooses to change. This is why the Psalms are like training wheels. They help us get the hang of an authentic prayer life with God. Now, we've already said that the main idea of this Psalm is deliverance, but here's how we get there. We learn to depend on on God, and that's a choice that we make. This is a prayer where, as we pray it, we learn to depend on God. Let's think about depending on God. Dependence on God is not fatalism, where we say, oh, whatever will be, will be. It'll just kind of turn out. It doesn't really matter what I do. That's fatalism. No, actually, in God's world, we are agents in time and space. Our things that we do, they actually do have an effect. Dependence is not impassivity. You know, where we kind of, let's just get ourselves in a really mellow state of mind where we can just ignore all of our circumstances. Psalm 3 is not that. It's an urgent prayer. David is not a stoic. Instead, David's trust in God means that in the middle of his circumstances, he is going to act. And he does act, but he's acting on the basis that God is in control, that God's ways will flourish, and that God's purpose will be brought about by human agents, himself included. So I just want to set up this contrast about what dependence really is. Okay, We could say, oh, it's the let go and let God kind of attitude. Well, that kind of Passivity or fatalism is like a swimmer lying on their back. Now, the waves of the ocean kind of come and they go. They might wash the guy out to sea. They might wash him into shore. Who knows? 
I want you to contrast that with a swimmer who knows the power of the ocean waves. They see the wave coming and they start paddling and they actually anticipate the power of the wave and the direction and the timing of the wave and they align themselves and their efforts with that of the wave. And they swim hard and they exert effort depending upon the power of the wave to carry them into the beach. little picture of dependence on God. It explains David's actions in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. As David retreats from Jerusalem, he plants the seeds of Absalom's downfall as he goes. He leaves behind the Ark of the Covenant and the priests. doesn't take them with him. And he says to his aged and trusted advisor, stay behind. You'll be a burden to me, but here you can do this work. He accepts support. Zeba gives him donkeys and food. Fantastic. And then there's the guy who's throwing stones and cursing him. He leaves him alone. As David departs from Jerusalem, he is actively depending on God's power on God's direction and God's timing, like a body surfer does the wave. And so we want to ask ourselves, how do we cultivate this kind of active dependence upon God? Well, we begin with prayer. We begin by praying through our situation and our circumstance, recognising God is the one who is in control of my circumstance, my situation. And I'm praying to him knowing that he is in this. He is my defense, whatever my challenge. We recall to mind that God is our glory. He is my reputation in this, not me. And he is going to be the one who lifts up my head, who restores me. As Christian people in prayer, we cultivate an active dependence. Depending on God then, David in this psalm gets to the heart of the prayer. Ultimately, he asks God for something. This is most definitely a prayer of deliverance. So verses 7 and 8. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is a call for justice. God is our great comforter, but he also acts. He engages in the very material world which we confront every day. And you can't help but notice David's language is kind of strong, isn't it? Very graphic. God, I want you to punch them in the jaw. I want you to break their teeth. In praying this, that God would bring justice. Notice that David is actually refraining from punching and killing. He doesn't take the justice into his own hands, but rather he asks God to bring justice. This is the way of the Psalms, okay? Calling on God for justice rather than taking justice into your own hands. David does not ask for the death of Absalom. Just, God, I want you to slap him around a little bit. There's a number of different kinds of justice. This breaking of jaws and smashing of teeth, that's 
retribution justice or retributive justice. It kind of calls for a proportional punishment for the wrongdoing. It's famously summed up in that Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? Proportional harm is returned upon the criminal and not an escalating series of bigger and greater punishments one to the other. Payback is prevented. It has a limit around it. So this breaking of jaws and smashing of teeth isn't even retribution for David. Absalom's trying to kill him. David doesn't try to kill Absalom. He prays, Lord, bring justice, a lesser consequence. So this is a prayer that we might call for retributive justice. We have some other kinds of justice too these days. We're quite into restorative justice, a little more popular for us in our contemporary world because it focuses on the need of the victim and the offender. What can we do to make it right for the victim? We like to think about justice in that way. How do we restore them? There's another kind of justice that's popular too, rehabilitative justice. Okay, popular because what we want to do is we want to stop the criminal from repeating their crime. So this is the theory by which you say, let's lock them up in jail until we can change them, make them nice again, and then we'll let them go. That's the theory at very least. How do Christians pray for justice? How do we even relate to justice? As you look at Jesus' teaching Jesus never actually sets up an ethical system of justice where the state should do X, Y, and Z. Rather, he says, for Christians, you need to, in the day-to-day, live on the basis of grace, trusting that God, in the fullness of time, will bring absolute justice on Judgment Day. This does not say... Governments should not exercise justice on behalf of their people. Not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. Christians are also to look for justice, to seek justice and act for justice for the oppressed, for other people, justice for others, for the weak. Maybe even enduring injustice ourselves at the same time, where mercy leads to repentance before final judgment and God's absolute retribution for all sin. There's a lot more to be said about systems of justice, and that's really not the point. The point of this prayer is to show us that we are to pray for justice and gives us some training wheels about how we might go about it. What ought we pray for? What would justice look like in my situation? How, God, can you bring justice out of my hardship? At very least, as Christians, we should be stretched to pray for justice. When you look at the world that you live in, perhaps as you see your own situation of who knows what it's going to be, is it office politics or is it family chaos, what would justice be and how, Lord, can you bring that? In David's situation, what we see him do is simply call out to God for justice. He says, Lord, deliver me. 
David doesn't actually dictate to God exactly how that's going to happen. And the conclusion of the narrative in 2 Samuel 17 would be pretty disappointing for David. It didn't turn out the way that he would like. But in the midst of his desperate situation, he calls to God, Lord, deliver me. As we move to the end of this psalm in verse 8, David reveals the rationale. Why is he praying like this? What is the foundation of his prayer? And it is this. From the Lord comes deliverance. This is the premise. Why is David praying on this? It's because from the Lord comes deliverance. God alone is the only one who can actually bring justice in all of its dimensions to the situation in which we find ourselves in the situation in which David found himself. And the final goal, the outcome of all of this that David seeks is blessing. Do you notice the final line of the psalm there? God seeks blessing. Sorry, David seeks blessing from God on his people. So through this terrible experience that David has gone through, his conclusion is, from the Lord comes deliverance. How does it end? Do you know how the narrative ends in 2 Samuel? It doesn't end well for Absalom and his rebels. Absalom initially chooses popularity over a hard-nosed military strategy. Uh, David's uh, advisor, having infiltrated the coup, remember, he actually says, I don't know, uh, Absalom, you, you want to establish your popularity among the people first. So David has time to escape. And only after Absalom has royally established himself in Jerusalem does Absalom gather an enormous army, a huge army to sort of surround and completely overwhelm David. But an accident happens along the way where Absalom is pinned by the fork of a tree suspended between heaven and earth. And David's three hardline generals find him and kill him much to David's sadness and his chagrin. So God's anointed king did not win the popularity contest, but he was returned to the throne. David's prayer was answered. Justice was done. And God was sovereign in all of that. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you that in no matter what circumstance we find ourselves, we can trust you as the one who brings deliverance. Lord, you alone can save and you will do right. Lord, help us to trust ourselves to your justice and help us to seek justice for those who are, uh, who are oppressed, for those uh, who are vulnerable. May we be your agents in this world. We ask you, Father, that you would teach us what it means to actively depend upon your great power and your great mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have time for a question if you'd like to ask a question. Um, while you're thinking of your question, I have one. I just wondered, you know, you said that um, when the word delivered was used in the Old Testament, it was really talking about an earthly experience. And for us in as a... New Testament reader, we understand that word to talk about our salvation, our eternal salvation. But is it 
okay? Is it appropriate? Is there a sense of being able to pray for our physical protection and anticipate that God might still intervene in time and place? Yeah, thanks very much for asking that question, Ness. Um, absolutely, yes. Um, I think um, we need to embrace both dimensions of God's salvation. That God does act to deliver us here and now in the present in so many ways. Uh, it may not always be the way that we anticipate, but certainly God's deliverance is anticipated now and his action in the present, as well as our eternal salvation. So both those dimensions ought to be uh, embraced in our understanding of salvation. Thank you. Uh, another question. In Psalm 3, verse 7, David pleaded with God to strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Should we ask God to harm our enemies in our prayers? Jesus asks us to love and pray for our enemies. Yeah. Um, as I said, the premise of David's um, pretty, you know, it sounded like a rugby league game really, didn't it? You know, striking my enemies on the jaw. The premise is his idea of justice is retributive justice. That's the justice that he knows. Okay? So we need to understand that context. As I was um, trying to alert us to is that justice has larger dimensions, different dimensions, more broad dimensions today, and we should be allowing for those kinds of dimensions in justice, in our, not only in our prayers, but also in what we do. So um, for the Christian person, um, I think particularly praying for the demise of our opponents is not um, entirely consistent with the teachings of Jesus. That's why I talk about grace as really the premise or as the starting point for our um, concern for justice in the present moment. We might be the ones who experience injustice and we pray for God's grace and patience in that, even as we act for God's justice to be done for those who are vulnerable and for those who are weak. So it's a difficult path that we find ourselves in, but the premise is that God is actually the one who delivers justice, not me deciding what's right and what's wrong, not me making myself judge and jury. It's complicated more than that because we act as individuals within a society where uh, the government is actually responsible for justice. And we see in the New Testament that, uh, particularly in Romans, where we're actually to respect the work for justice that our governments do. If you are someone involved in the legal system, you are corporately responsible for good justice taking place in our community. And the Christian person can do that and should be supported in that role on behalf of us all. So it's, it's not a straightforward one. I was hoping we wouldn't get too bogged in that. but It's good to think about these issues when we pray. Stu, how should we think about how we pray for justice in a secular world? Um, you talked about us trusting God for ultimate justice, but does God still use us as agents in some way? I think he absolutely does. Uh, I think our life of prayer for justice will probably inform the way and give us insight into the ways that we should be bringing justice right now. So, as I said, um, our legal system needs Christian people to be part of the system and to actually work for what is right and fair and just within that. But as a private citizen, that's not my place or concern, but I pray for those who are involved in the legal system 